any mention of the Wild West brings up many images that books and film have ingrained in the American mind over decades. Cowboys trailing cattle up the trail to deliver to market. Bold Native American warriors fighting to preserve their way of life. Settlers and soldiers just as determined to fight back and take the land that they felt that they somehow deserved. Surely many more can be listed, but there are two that will definitely always pop up in the American mind. The confident gunman that has a steady hand and a sure shot that will lay his opponent or opponents in the dust. And then there's the image of feuding families or associations of cattlemen or others that have resorted to bloody violence to establish their control over the use of the water and land as they saw fit. So play that funky music, cowboy, because in this episode of the Wild West Extravaganza, we are taking a look at one of the steadiest and best shots of all gunmen, Commodore Perry Owens, and his role in the bloodiest range feud in American history, Arizona's Pleasant Valley War. All right, folks, unless this is the first episode of Wild West Extravaganza that you've ever listened to, then it didn't take you long to figure out that I am not the usual host. After months of complaints and attempts by management to control the host, well, Josh has been sent to time out. He'll be back after he's had some time to sit in the corner and think about the things he's done wrong. That, of course, is all a lie. Hello, my name is Michael, and I host a little history podcast about a big state with big history, the Texas History Lessons Podcast. A while back, Josh suggested we switch podcasts for an episode, and I agreed with fear and trepidation. I'm a fan of Josh and the Wild West Extravaganza, and the thought of filling his shoes has given me a little cause for worry. He has a unique approach and a definitely dedicated passion for telling the stories of the Wild West that I admire. While we have different deliveries and approaches to it, we both share a passion for getting to the facts as close as we can and as difficult an area as Western history can be. So if you want to hear his silky voice, just run over to the Texas History Lessons podcast episode on the Texas Rangers and the 1919 investigation. But wait, not yet. Not yet. Finish this episode and then go check it out. At least give me a chance here. Now, enough malingering. Let's get to work and learn about the life and exploits of Commodore Perry Owens. Let's begin with the man with the odd name, Commodore Perry Owens. And yes, that is his name. He wasn't a Commodore. And as far as I know, he was never in a Navy. He was born July 29th, 1852 in Hawkins County, Tennessee to Father Oliver H. Perry Owens, who had been named in honor of Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry a United States naval hero of the War of 1812. Mother, Fanny Connor Owens, in order to carry a form of the tradition on, chose to name the boy Commodore Perry Owens. When he was a child, his family moved away from Tennessee and set up a farm in Liberty Township, Hendricks County, Indiana. And he was part of a big family. His father, Oliver H. Perry Owens had also been born in Hawkins County, Tennessee, back in September 15, 1822, and he died December 1891 at the age of 69 in the same county of uh, in Indiana, Hendricks, that he had taken his family. 
mother, Fanny Connor Owens, was born April 7th, 1822 in Hawkins County, Tennessee, and she outlived Oliver by several years, dying at 88 years old on September 10th, 1910 in Hendricks County and buried by her husband in Spring Hill Cemetery in Cartersburg, Indiana. Like I said, he had a big family. He was not an only child. Oliver and Sarah's marriage produced several brothers and sisters. Two older brothers, I discovered, apparently served for the Union in the Civil War. There were two older sisters, and he had a younger sister and a younger brother. There's Sarah Owens Holt, who's buried in Spring Hill Cemetery. There's another brother, Nicholas, who is buried at Crown Hill National Cemetery with Union veterans of the Civil War. And in Annapolis, there's Amanda Jane, Mandy Owens, Keith, who's also buried in Spring Hill Cemetery. Then there's John Clinton Owens, who's fought in Union Army Company A of the 156th Regiment of the Indiana Infantry, also buried Spring Hill Cemetery. There's William A. Owens, born in Indiana in 1863, and he sadly died of a gunshot wound when he was only 15 years old when a weapon fell over in a wagon and went off. But before this happened, Owens had already left. So there are reports of the father not being a very successful farmer, and there are also reports that he was abusive, which is why Owens left home. On the other hand, Owens did have fond memories of his mother. Why he really left, I'm not sure. The rest of the family stuck it out and stayed together, from what I can gather. But sometime around 1865, when Owens was 13 years old, he left home. He ran away from home and headed west, leaving behind his parents and six siblings, including little two-year-old William who probably would have liked having him around to be a big brother. And as I said, all except Nicholas would be buried together in Spring Hill Cemetery. What drove Commodore Perry Owens away? Some articles, like I said, suggest he was abusive. If that was the case, then Owens was only one of the many children to run away, because as I've found, the family did stay together. And there is not a clear certainty on the age he left home. Many sources I've come across said it was when he was 13, which would have placed it about 1865, near the end of the Civil War. But the best article on Owens' life that I found doing research for this is by a gentleman named Larry D. Ball, a university professor, and he has an excellent article titled Commodore Perry Owens, The Man Behind the Legend. It was published in 1992 in the Journal of Arizona History. You can find it online if you want to do a search for it and read that. I highly recommend it because it's pretty thorough and I base a lot of what I discovered on it. He says that he was 16 years old when he left home. Despite which age it was, it was not uncommon in American history for boys to set out at such a young age. Alamo legend David Crockett spent many years from about the age of 13 on his own, far away from home working, but he did return home at one point. And the man that Tarleton State University in Stephenville, Texas, 
was named after John Tarleton. He left his home in the Northeast at age 13 and wandered the country, laboring for years until he raised the capital to secure some land in Erath County and set up a mercantile business. And he ended up leaving an endowment for Tarleton State University to be established. But I digress, as is something I do quite a bit. What we do know is that young Commodore Perry Owens, sometimes between 1865 and 1868, set out the door for a life of adventure. Now, this is where things get difficult in history, especially the history of the West. We really don't know much about what happened for several years of his life. And what we do know lacks details. But here's what we do know. He eventually found a job with the railroad as a buffalo hunter. The implication in the articles is, is that he was actually getting to fire the gun and kill the buffalo. But you also got to take into account that he might have been a skinner and maybe worked his way up to shooting buffalo. We don't know. We just don't know. But if he was shooting, he and as he killed buffalo each day to feed railroad workers, Owens developed an amazing skill as a marksman. Now, let's look at the timeline. The first transcontinental railroad was a 1912-mile railroad line constructed between 1863 and 1869. It reached westward from the existing Eastern United States Rail Network at Council Bluffs, Iowa, all the way to the Pacific Coast, ending at the Oakland Long Wharf on San Francisco Bay. So we do know that, if this is true, that he might have secured a job in the final years of the building of the railroad, because, as we've learned about many Wild West legends, many people got employment killing buffalo. It is during these quiet years that many sources assert that it, this is when Owens developed an uncanny ability with shooting rifles and pistols. It's said that Owens could shoot a rifle accurately from the hip without using the sights. It's also said that Owens was ambidextrous, wore two pistols, and would entertain people by shooting a can across a pasture by alternating shots with pistols in his left and right hands. This alone sets Owens apart from many famed gunmen because in researching it, apparently not all gunmen necessarily were that great a shot. They just were good at killing. Now, after his stint as a buffalo hunter for the railroads, Owens went to work as a cow hand for ranches in Indian Territory, modern-day Oklahoma, and in New Mexico. And this pretty much fits the timeline as well. We next know for certain that in 1873, when Commodore Perry Owens was about 21 years old, we know that he was employed by Hilliard Rogers on his ranch outside of the future town of Bartlesville, Oklahoma, in northeastern Indian Territory. Now here's a quick aside about Bartlesville. Bartlesville was incorporated as a town in the 1890s, but it was named after Jacob Bartles, son-in-law of Delaware chief and Baptist minister Charles Journeycake. Bartles moved to the area near where Rogers ranched in 1873, and I'd like to add Rogers was born in Georgia in 1819, and it is said that he 
was an interpreter for General Winfield Scott during the Seminole War of 1837. He later moved west to Indian Territory and established a ranch near Bartlesville, where he died in 1870 at age 51. But again, I digress. For almost a decade, Commodore Perry Owens' activities are mostly hearsay. Many have him as being a cowhand on drives to Kansas and New Mexico. While giving an interview many years later, Owens admitted that during these younger years, he was associated with a gang of tough characters. It is possible that this future lawman participated in such nefarious activities as rustling, whiskey running, and other depredations in the Indian Territory. But most of this is hearsay and without much support that can be found. Nevertheless, as we've learned on the Wild West extravaganza and from other histories, it wasn't uncommon that early lawmen sometimes crossed back and forth over that line of law and outlaw. The next step in Owen's story takes us to Arizona, where we come closer to the event that made him famous. According to Arizona State historian Marshall Trimble, Arizona has always been a place people could go and reinvent themselves. Now, whether or not Owens is running from something or just searching for a better life for himself, he eventually found himself at the site of the most violent feud in the history of all America, the Pleasant Valley War lasted for a decade, 1882 to 1892. And let me add here that you might have heard of the war by some other name, like the Tonto Basin Feud, or Tonto Basin War, or the Tewksbury-Graham Feud. So, Owens' story picks up again in 1881 when 28-year-old Commodore Perry Owens is found homesteading near Navajo Springs, Arizona, northeast of present Holbrook, Arizona. He'd built a small dugout cabin and dug a well near the stage station. He also built stables for his livestock, and he raised purebred horses. Owens is said to have named his place the Z-Bar Ranch, but the Apache County Recorder's Office has no record of this name. About this time, it's also apparent that he was working as a ranch foreman for James D. Houck. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's either Hauk or Hook. I'm going to say Hauk, H-O-U-C-K, and A.E. Hennings of Navajo Springs, Arizona. Now, about this time, there's also a picture of Owens from his time there. In his youth, he wore his reddish-yellow hair really long. Atop his head, he wears a flat, round-brim hat with unshaped, rounded top. His hair hangs down, reaching almost to his elbows. He has a long face with a long aquiline nose above a full mustache. It looks like a kerchief or a bandana is tied around his neck. Boots and chaps make out his dress, and around his waist is a visible gun belt with a long scabbard and pistol visible on his left hip. His right hand grips the barrel of a rifle with its stock resting on the ground. On his left hip, you can also see four-inch wide belt strapped around his waist, carrying two rows of ammunition for the revolver and the rifle. It's been passed down that he was popular with the ladies and that they also poked fun at the unusual name of Commodore Perry Owens. It's also said that he was a pretty quiet man. There's a story, legend, or myth from this time concerning Owens' involvement fighting Navajos. 
apparently to what I've seen, it's not really a myth. The Navajos at this time were struggling against American encroachment on their traditional territory. One story relates that he killed two Navajo who were trying to steal horses, and from that he earned the name of Iron Man. Two years later, in September 1883, Owens killed a young Navajo boy near Hawks Ranch. U.S. Indian agent Dennis Matthew Reardon arrested Owens for the murder of the boy. Owens claimed he killed the child because he was stealing horses. Now, I'm not out here to paint Owens as a hero or a villain. He was a man who carried the ideals and prejudices of his time. But I would like to add the following from a report that Agent Reardon filed. On Saturday, early in the morning, a Navajo boy, the son of Chief Denajina Bagay, was shot twice by an American. The boy lingered until that night when he died. When he reached help, which he managed to do, he told his story which was that a man named C.P. Owens had shot him, that he was unarmed and died not knowing the reason for his being shot. Reardon continues, two other Navajos who had started out with the one who was killed to herd up their horses and who were a mile or so from him at the time of the shooting immediately got on the trail of the murder and followed him to his house, or rather the house of J.D. Houck, where he lived. I went over the ground with Lieutenant Lockett of the 4th Cavalry and trailed the tracks right from the place where the Indian boy fell from his horse when he was shot to the door of Houck's house. I arrested Owens charged with the killing of the Indian boy. He is now in keeping of the military authorities at Fort Wingate. These men, Owens and Houck, are men dangerous to the peace and good order of this region. I saw over 25 Indians who had been shot at by them during the past year or two, including an Indian woman. I despair of securing a conviction of either of them and realize that I am liable to be assassinated by them for having undertaken to punish them for their crimes. I am here alone without any means of protection or of enforcing authority unless I send 46 miles for it after an emergency arises. As Reardon feared, the case did go to trial with the charge of murder, and the Apache County jury acquitted Owens of murder. By this time, the Pleasant Valley War was in its early stages, but it wasn't the only source of worry for honest sellers of the area. The area was notorious for being, as one source puts it, a haven for outlaws and hellhole for honest settlers. One of these outlaw leaders was someone most of you are already pretty familiar with. I'm sure you're all familiar with the Clanton gang and the gunfight at the OK Corral and Tombstone. I'm not going to do much than refer to a few of the events leading up to Ike Clanton's arrival in Apache County. As you know, Ike Clanton and his family and his cowboys had been rustling cattle and disrupting the peace. For a long time, they were adversaries with the Earp brothers, and Clanton had threatened to kill the Earps. On October 26, 1881, Ike Clanton's threats instigated the gunfight at the OK Corral. When the shooting started, Ike fled. His younger brother died. In December 1881, Virgil Earp was shot and maimed from ambush with a shotgun. Ike Clanton's hat was found behind the building where the shot had been fired. He was arrested, but the charges were dismissed for lack of evidence and the fact that some good friends testified that Ike was out of town at the time of the shooting. A few months later, Morgan Earp was also killed in an ambush. 
White Earp formed a posse and went after Ike Clanton. Earp never found Clanton, but did kill some of the cowboys, but never found Clanton. Because Clanton moved his operation north to Apache County, where he prospered. It said that he claimed ranching was very profitable when you didn't have to buy the cows. Due to his fun shooting tricks that he performed and the killings of the Navajo, which the cattlemen in the area appreciated, Perry gained a reputation as a gunman. The People's Party nominated him for Sheriff of Apache County in 1886, and he had the support of the Apache County Stock Growers Association, the Mormons, and the Mexican population. With the support and popularity, he won the election in November 1886 by a margin of 91 votes over Democratic candidate Tomas Perez. Now, it is important to recognize that at this time, Apache County also included the territory of modern Navajo County, which was created in 1895. His office covered 21,000 square miles. For perspective, this is larger than the combined area of New Hampshire and Vermont. It's said that he went to work and cleaned up the filthy jail and kept close accounts of his office's expenses. He tried to use his power to work towards taming the lawless town of Holbrook. The previous sheriff, John Don, in quotation marks, Lorenzo Hubble, left behind 14 warrants for Owens when he took office in January of 1887. A couple of those listed on these warrants are going to be familiar to you and important for this episode. Ike Clanton, who we've already talked about, and uh, Andrew Arnold Cooper, a name serving as an alias for a man named Andy Blevins, who is from Texas. The Clanton gang and the Blevins brothers' nefarious activities gave them a reputation for being rustlers and outlaws, and they caused a lot of problem in the area of Arizona that they lived in. The law-abiding citizens who elected Owens expected action against these and other lawless bad men. He had the reputation as being a brave man. Now they wanted Commodore Perry Owens to prove it. From the time he relocated from the Tombstone area to Apache County, Ike Clan and his gang wreaked havoc. It was Owens's job to deal with it now. So, on November 6, 1886, rancher Isaac Ellinger was shot at Clanton's ranch by a member of his gang, Lee Renfro. Ellinger and a witness said it was entirely unprovoked, and Ellinger died four days later. I want you to take a moment to notice. In the books and movies, the gunshot immediately does its job, and people die. What a lot of times happened, as apparent from the story of Owen shooting the boy who lingered all day long and died later, and this guy dying four days later. It took sometimes a long time for somebody to die, and they actually were able to be deposed uh, during their suffering before they expired. Moving forward, on Christmas Day, 1886, another Clanton gang member named Billy Evans killed Jim Hale after Billy is reported to have said that he wanted to see if a bullet would go through a Mormon. Now, this gentleman had identified cattle stolen by the Clantons. So there was motive there. Owens took office as sheriff in 1887 on January 1st, and it said that he hired ex-Texas lawman Jeff Milton to arrest the Clantons, but he didn't follow through. 
Sheriff Owens then sent deputies Rawhide Jake Brighton and Albert Miller to go arrest Ike Klan and his associates. They did not find Klan at his ranch, but they encountered him on June the 1st, 1887. Ike Clanton, sitting a horseback, pulled his Winchester from its scabbard and turning his horse to aim, Brighton let loose, shot, and killed Ike Clanton after first shooting Clanton's saddle horn. In July, ranchers trailing stolen horses killed gang members Billy Evans and Longhair Sprague. Rawhide Jake Brighton also killed Lee Renfro while trying to arrest him. That was the end of the Clanton gang. That was the end. I guess you could look at it as the aftermath of the OK Corral. Perry was not directly involved, but it happened under his watch, which leads us to the Owens Blevins shootout and the Pleasant Valley War. The Pleasant Valley War had started in that area in 1882 as a dispute between cattlemen and sheep herders. That's the official story. Actually, it was a little bit more complicated than that because it was often cattlemen that were opposed to sheep herders in the area and cattlemen that supported the rights of sheep herders in the area in conflict. This war had the highest number of fatalities of such range conflicts in United States history. By the time it ended in 1892, there has been an estimated total of 35 to 50 deaths with the near annihilation of the males of the two feuding families, the Grahams and the Tewksbury's. So we have this feud between the Tewksbury's, who had some Native American blood in their family line, and who supported the sheep herders' rights, and the Grahams, who opposed them. Now, as it turns out, they had been close friends. But a writer named Jinx Powell has uncovered some information that shows something a little bit more insidious that led to the beginning of the war. Like I said, the Grahams and Tewksbury's had been friends before the conflict. Powell discovered that in 1884, a big cattleman in the area, probably one of the largest outfits in the area of raising cattle, by the name of James Stinson, he'd made an agreement with Tom Graham, the head of the Graham family. It's claimed that almost every small cattle in the area had been stealing cows from Stinson's big outfit. At least that's what Stinson was afraid of, including the Grams and the Tewksbury's. So Stinson decided to pit the two families against one another. He cut a secret deal with the Grams. He hired them to work for him secretly as range detectives and paid a huge bounty in cattle for each conviction. Their target was their partners, the Tewksbury's. Graham accused the Tewksbury's of rustling Stinson's cattle, but the effort backfired when the Tewksbury's were found innocent. They were not able to enforce the claim that they were stealing, and the Grahams were charged with perjury. When the sheep herders began to arrive, tensions rose even higher. The first bloodshed, I understand, occurred in 1885 when John D. Tewksbury leased a herd of sheep from the Daggs brothers and had it driven into Pleasant Valley by a Basque sheep herder. Andy Cooper, remember the name from the indictment, who was actually Andy Blevins, was a member of the Graham faction and an associate of the Hashknife Cowboys. He ambushed and killed the sheep herder. Nothing was done about it. Another sheep herder was killed in 1887 that we know about, 
Allegedly, this was by Tom Graham, but he was never charged. Then in August 9th, 1887, there was a big gunfight at the Middleton Ranch. Andy Cooper was present there. Two allies of the Grahams were left dead, and the war became a long series of revenge killings after that. It also involved the actions of Sheriff Commodore Perry Owens. The entire war is worth its own episode, but let's, for the sake of brevity, focus on the events that made Owens famous and was the highlight of his Wild West career as a lawman and gunman. The Andy Cooper that Perry had an indictment against when he took office was the alias of Andy Blevins, a native of Mason County, Texas. He and his younger brother, Charlie, allegedly fled from Texas for crimes like rustling and murder and made it out to Apache County about 1884-1885, where he changed his name and went by Andy Cooper. Other family members, including younger brothers, father and mother, other members of the Blevins clan, soon joined them. And it's said that Blevins had to kill at least three Navajo men in this time period, something Commodore Perry Owens could relate to. He'd also reportedly killed two lawmen that had trailed him and the sheep herder that we'd mentioned. Now, old man Blevins had disappeared in June of 1887. No one really knows what happened, but it's whispered that he was killed by the Tewksbury's. On September 2nd, 1887, Andy Blevins and others ambushed and killed John Tewksbury and Bill Jacobs. There's lots of names. And when you start digging into it, pretty much everybody in that area in one way or another was participant on one side or another. There's a really good map on one of the websites. I think it's for Gila County. They show a map and they show where different people lived and show how they were associated. And it wasn't like one side of the valley or this area were all one or the other. They were all living amongst each other, close to each other. But again, I digress. So, Andy Blevins kills John Tewksbury and Bill Jacobs. People in Holbrook reported that they heard Blevins actually bragging about the killings. So this gets us back to the old arrest warrant that Sheriff Owens inherited to arrest Andy Cooper Blevins. But he had never gone after the Blevins. The warrant is for the theft of some 25 horses from a Mormon who had tracked his horses to the Blevins Canyon Creek Ranch, and he identified Andy as the thief. A county official had likewise seen Andy driving the horses. So much time, so much time went by, and nothing was done about it. People began to talk. Some said it was because Owens and Blevins were friends, having been cowboys together, and this very well is likely. They probably did know each other. Others said Owens was afraid of Blevins. That Blevins was a killer was common knowledge. The thing is, so was Perry. He just hadn't sided in the war and now had official duties to perform. But finally, Sheriff Commodore Perry Owens decided to act. On Sunday, September 4th, 1887, Sheriff Owens rode to the Blevins Cottage in Holbrook to serve the outstanding warrant for rustling on Andy Cooper alias of Andy Blevins. There were about 12 people inside the house that afternoon. There was, of course, the older brother, Andy Cooper Blevins, 
his younger brothers John and Sam Houston Blevins. Mrs. Blevins was there. John Blevins' wife, Ava, was there with their infant son. There was a family friend, Miss Amanda Gladden, and another gentleman that was boarding there with them named Moat Roberts. And there are also supposedly several children running about. You can imagine a Sunday afternoon in a small area. So Sheriff Owens rode into town from the south, and he put his horse up at the livery stable. Leaving the stable, he walked over to the drugstore owned by Deputy Sheriff Frank Watron. Owens asked if Cooper was in town. Watron said he was. Owens said, I'm going to take him in. He then sat down to clean and reload his pistol. Someone apparently offered to go along with Owens, but the sheriff apparently said, reportedly, if they get me, it's all right, but I want you and everyone else to stay out of it. So Owens stands up, he cradles his Winchester in his arms, and he walks toward the Bellevin's house that sat about a 100 yards away. In front of the house, there was a saddle done tied to a cottonwood tree just a few feet from the front of the house. Now, what apparently had happened, John Blevins had seen the sheriff arrive, and he went and warned Andy. Andy told him, fetch my horse, bring it to the house. And Andy was outside saddling the horse, finishing up when he saw Owens leave and start towards the Blevins' house. And then he went into the house. This was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Owen stepped up on the porch and said a hail to the fugitives, called out to them. Owens reported in his testimony that he could see into the house through the windows, and he saw Andy and John both take out their pistols. Now, on this front porch, there were two doors, one on the east end and the other on the west end. John went to the west door and opened it a little bit. Andy opened the east door and stuck his head out a little. Owen said, Cooper, I have a warrant for you. Andy Cooper, Blevins, said, what warrant? Owens replied that it was the one for stealing horses that he had already talked with Andy about. That little part of the testimony kind of makes me raise an eyebrow. So they had discussed it. And it makes me wonder if they'd reached some kind of an agreement or what had transpired. It's not evident about what had happened. So Andy apparently said, according to Cooper, wait. Owen said, Cooper, no wait. And Cooper said, I won't go. Some reports said that Andy Cooper raised his pistol to shoot. Owens himself was pretty limited in his words. He said that when Cooper said, I won't go, he fired the Winchester and mortally wounded Andy Cooper Blevins, hitting him in the abdomen, and he falls back into the house. Blevins' brother, John, opened the door slightly and fired his revolver. He completely missed Owens and hit and apparently killed Andy's horse, the dun that was tied up in front. Commodore Perry Owens whirled around, fired again, hitting Blevins in the shoulder and severely wounding him. Owens saw Andy on his knees trying to fire again, one report says, and he fired again, hitting him in the hip. Andy Cooper Blevins was already mortally wounded at this point, though. Sheriff Owens stepped back off the porch and retreated back to a spot near the corner of a very close nearby blacksmith shop. 
That's when he saw Moat Roberts jump out of the window with a pistol in his hand. Owens fired and killed him and then immediately turned around and saw 15-year-old Sam Houston Blevins exiting the house with Andy's pistol in his hand. Reports say that his mother had tried to stop him, but Sam came out with a six-shooter in hand. One report says, I'll get him. Owens fired again, hitting the boy in the chest, killing him. So there's Owens standing there in the aftermath of all this gunfire. And when no one else tried to come out of the house to fight or attack him, he started back towards the livery stable. In his words, in his testimony, he said, I see no other man, so I left the house. One minute had elapsed from the beginning of the gunfight to the end, and Perry didn't have a scratch on him. I should say that one other source said it was up to three minutes. In the heat of the battle, who had their stopwatch out to even try to count? It's reported that as he walked up the street, Deputy Watchman asked him, Did you get them? Owen's answer? Yes. Whenever I draw a bead, I know I have got them. Now, it's this one incident that made Owens a gunfighting legend. He had removed some of the people involved in the Pleasant Valley War, some of the killers, Andy Blevins being the most one of the most notorious ones. Three people lay dead. Andy Blevins, his young brother Sam, and Moat Roberts. John was severely wounded with a gunshot wound to the shoulder. And despite the cool resolve he exhibited in the days after the shootout, it is clear that the killing of young Sam Houston Blevins did trouble Commodore Perry Owens for the rest of his life. He regretted that it happened. But as he said, even a boy of that age holding a pistol in his hand could kill me. So he felt that he had nothing else he could do about it. Now, this story spread and the legend grew of one of the sheriffs fighting a number of foes without getting a scratch on them. Now, everybody wasn't happy with this. The Holbrook newspaper suggested that it had been a needless shooting and that Owens was responsible. Commodore Perry Owens supporters argued that the Coopers and others' reign of thievery and terror had gone on long enough and that Owens had at least done something to put an end to it. Now, Owens did have to appear before three coroner's juries that were held in regard to each of the killings, and in each of them, they ruled that Owens had been justified. The Pleasant Valley War continued, coming to an end in 1892. While delivering a load of wheat from a store in 1892, Tom Graham, the last of the Graham faction involved in the feud, was fatally shot in the back by two assassins. Before he died, Tom named Ed Tewksbury and John Rhodes as his attackers. So much death and two families had almost been completely destroyed, in addition to all the other loss of life. Now, Owens' remaining career as a sheriff was pretty anticlimactic. When he came up for re-election, however, he was defeated and returned to raising horses at Navajo Springs. And apparently he was really skilled at it. He raised some really great horses that people love to buy. He did serve in posses where his manhunting skills were in high value. And he did serve as an appointment as deputy U.S. Marshal for a while. And he also guarded the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad at times. And he did serve one more time temporarily as a sheriff when he was appointed to the newly created Navajo County Sheriff's Office 
but he never wanted re-election to sheriff's office again. As Larry D. Ball wrote in his excellent article on Owens, if the man does not quite measure up to the legend, Commodore Owens nonetheless made important contributions to the settlement of northeastern Arizona. His primary task was to end livestock theft, and in this he succeeded. Ball also added that it was Owens' reputation as a man-killer that probably hurt his career. One observer said that after the shootout, there was an awe of him by the people in the area, but there was also a fear that it might just happen again. The rest of his life was fairly uneventful. He married, he moved away, he returned. When he returned to Seligman, Arizona, he, he spent the rest of his life there. He bought property and opened up a general store and saloon. And he died there in 1919. Now, as later in his life, when he was being interviewed, he claimed to have killed 14 men. And while this can't be substantiated, we know he definitely killed six, the three Navajos and three cattle rustlers and killers. And we don't know what he did in his earlier life in that time period when he was running with a tough bunch. So that is the career of Commodore Perry Owens. One of the most accurate gunmen there ever was in the West. A man that had ice running through his veins. There are many more stories that could be told about the Pleasant Valley War. And I barely even dove into it. Even even Owens' role in it was kind of on the side because he never participated or took a side publicly on it. But I'm sure you can go out if you're interested. There are many books, many articles written about it. There are books written about Owens. There are some recent ones that have come out claim to tell the complete story. I want to thank Josh for letting me host this episode of one of what I consider the, one of the best history podcasts available, the Wild West Extravaganza. Like I said, we both share a love for getting to the facts beyond the myth, telling the myth if it's appropriate but seeing what we can find out below what really happened and his delivery and passion in each episode, he keeps getting better. And I appreciate this opportunity to try to be a part of wild West extravaganza. Now be sure to share the wild West extravaganza with history lovers that, you know, go visit the show's great website at wildwestextra.com and click on the contact button to send in questions and comments. Now, you can also support the show like I do on Patreon. And you can find out a lot more information in the show notes about how you can find them on Twitter and elsewhere. As for me, I'm Michael, and I'm the host of Texas History Lessons. What's that? To be brief as possible, it basically started with me wanting to take a walk back through all the cool stuff in Texas history that I've learned since seventh grade and see what I had missed. And apparently it's been a lot. And I'm taking a slow walk through from the beginning of time. Seriously, I went back there uh, to now I'm actually reached the Spanish period, starting that part two of the podcast where we're diving into those lessons about Spanish Texas. I'm very excited about it. So I decided when I started doing that walk of my own that I wanted to share with others. So I started the podcast and it's been a very fun 
little adventure. And it's brought me here to where I'm actually going to talk to you folks. So there are lots of bonus episodes on a wide range of topics that are aside from the lessons, just to mix things up and keep things interesting. I've done some things on the Galveston hurricane of 1900, the Texas city disaster, the new London disaster. I've covered the first dogs that came to the Americas. A lot of great topics out there and there's no, there's no end to the possibilities and I've been enjoying it. And I take my time and I do things the way I want to. So go check it out if you get an opportunity. Thanks again, everyone. Thanks, Josh. And until next time, this has been the Texas History Lessons Podcast takeover episode of the Wild West Extravaganza. Be kind. Take care of yourself and others. Thanks for listening. Adios.